I was functioning in a system um, in which my daily activities were often out of complete alignment with mm. my my inner belief system. And, you know, the sad consequence when that happens over, you know, years and years is, um, you know, kind of collapse, if we're being quite honest, like it can, I feel like that cognitive dissonance, uh, that emotional, that blocking of the heart um, can only happen, can only happen so long before uh, there's some kind of crisis in the system. And, you know, I, uh, I chose um, some years ago to close my surgical practice and, um, and to, uh, you know, pursue some other interests. I'm Luke Story. I'm Mark Grove. I'm Lily Nichols. I'm Natasha Kingsbury, and this is the Holistic OBGYN Podcast. My guest today on the Holistic OBGYN Podcast is Jennifer Lang. She is an OBGYN who, like me, went for additional training, but she didn't go for one year of fellowship in hospice and palliative care. She went for three years. Um, to specialize in GYN oncology, similarly, actually, to James Thorpe, who you, MD, who you heard from last week, who took three extra years, not in oncology, but he went into high-risk OB, also called maternal fetal medicine. These types of doctors, for them to come out on the other end of all that training, to work a career and really maintain some semblance of identity is really remarkable. To really be able to show up and stand, stand, um, stand up with your feet on the ground and say, I don't agree with this. I'm going to do things a little differently. It takes a lot of courage. As I mentioned in my uh, my episode with James Thorpe last week, there's a lot of uh, there are a lot of incentives to just kind of sticking with the status quo based on your training, based on what you've seen and experienced in your not just your education but also early in your career. There's a lot of money on the line. There's a lot of prestige. There's a lot of collegiality on the line. So Jennifer Lang, being an OBGYN, um, a GYN oncologist, is a really special woman. And in my circles, she's sort of a bit of a legend. She's the mother of three kids, 10, 8, and 7. She's written two books, The Whole Nine Months, A Week-by-Week, Pregnancy Guide with Recipes for a Healthy Start, as well as Consent, Every Teen's Guide to Healthy Sexuality. Um, For her to have written those two books as a GYN oncologist, it floored me. Because when I was a a resident, the GYN oncologists thought I was the absolute worst doctor. In fact, they compared me to Patch Adams, and I thought that was a compliment until they said Patch Adams was a terrible doctor because he gave up too easily on people. And my my sojourn into palliative and hospice care uh, reflected to them that I wasn't interested in healing. I was I was interested in the sort of the death trade, and maybe they were right. You know, I don't have great feelings about our end of life care in the United States either. But suffice it to say, I didn't think that their care of women um, was all that great either. When they knew without a shadow of a doubt that that many of their their patients were going to die within months to maybe a few years after starting their chemo not being honest with them about that. And and certainly their resistance to getting palliative care involved early to me uh, really left a sore spot. Then I met Jeff and Jennifer and she gave me hope again. <laughs> In this conversation, we it ranges from the objectification of our patients as doctors, starting in the cadaver lab, day one of medical school, 
to consent polyamory, to play parties, to uh, sexuality and intimacy and conscious partnering. This is a very, very wide-ranging episode that is very, very relevant to women's health in not just the biohacking way, right? Like, biohack your health, five tips for fertility, five hacks to boost your sperm. Like, we're not hacking shit, guys. Lose the term biohacking. It's useless. It doesn't work. It doesn't mean anything to anybody anymore because everybody out there with a social media account is a biohacker. If you want to do real work, you have to look beyond just the physical. That means getting the mental, emotional, and spiritual space. And Jennifer and I have proven through decades of, of training and experience that we are, we are comfortable. Like we get the physical stuff, the biochemistry, the pathophysiology. We get all of that. Let's expand now our conception of what women's health care could mean. And, you know, I, I think it's super, super important to emphasize that Jennifer has been out of GYN oncology practice for a while because of her disillusionment with, this, with the system. But she's coming back into practice in a very conscious way, very intentional way, bringing a, what sounds to me, not her words, but what sounds to me, a very holistic, comprehensive, patient-centered, trauma-informed way of coping with the realities of being a woman with the cervical cancer screenings, with the optimizing your health, with sexuality, intimacy, all of the things that we're going to talk about on the show. She's bringing that into a new practice that she plans to open up soon in Southern California. So you are going to love this one. I always love having other doctors on the show. It makes me feel very, very much less lonely in this world. In order to bring this episode, as with every episode, we've got to have some sponsors and because Jennifer works uh, in GYN Oncology, or at least she's, that was her specialty in GYN Oncology, I want to start with Immunintel HCC. This is a very, very special product that is made from the mycelia of shiitake mushrooms. It's a functional food, and it has been clinically demonstrated to help clear HPV. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to make sure that Jennifer has ample access to this clinical data um, because there's a lot of women who are doing this, cleaning their HPV, saving themselves painful biopsies, um, dis disfiguring cervical, um, just call them lead procedures, cervical knife cone procedures, these cervical excisional procedures, whenever early cervical cancer forms, immune intel might be a part of saving the day. It's funny that, you know, you go back and forth through OBGYN with positive HPV that won't go away or early, you know, cervical intraepithelial neoplasia, this type of stuff. And nobody ever talks to you about actually working on boosting your immune system through healthy food, healthy lifestyle, getting your adrenals back on board, getting your immune system working and getting your gut health in check. Immune Intel HCC is definitely a part of my program. And I hope you guys will go to themedicine.com slash products and check it out. That's T-H-E-M-E-D-I-C-I-N.com slash products. Use code BELOVED10. You'll save yourself 10%. The owner and founder of this brand, Mimi Lindquist, and I are putting together a course all about HPV and help to help it, how to help clear it naturally, which can be a course you can take in conjunction with your conventional care, whether you get it from Jennifer Lang, although I don't know if Jennifer would call her practice very conventional, but any other OBGYN uh, or oncologist, you can do this um, alongside that. Boost your immune system, um, boost the communication between your NK cells and T cells, decrease your systemic inflammation, and get rid of that persistent HPV for, for good. And, and honestly, just become healthier in general. This episode is also brought to you by Organifi. Organifi makes three products. I mean, they make a lot of products that are great. They're all USDA organic. They're all non-GMO. They're all glyphosate-free. They're all gluten-free. They're all dairy-free. All that stuff. All the things that you want. And they make a couple products that I think are just 
sort of a hands down, kind of a, a necessary thing to have in your in your repertoire. Their green juice I drink in the morning, the red juice in the afternoon, their gold their gold latte in the evening. I mix it up with some full fat organic coconut milk. For a limited time, if you go to Organifi.com slash beloved, you can pick up this sunrise to sunset kit, one canister of each of those, and they're gonna throw in a box of single serving packets of their pure, which will help you with um, improve your mental clarity, your cognition, your focus. I love all four of these products. They are go-to for me. Go to Organifi.com slash Beloved, and you'll save yourself 20% on your purchase, and you'll score 30 single-serving packets of their Pure. Go do it now. We've also got uh, Bioptimizers. Bioptimizers makes a couple really, really great products. I have most of my fertility and pregnant clients, if needed. I have them on their Magnesium Breakthrough, which has seven distinct types of magnesium. You may be supplementing with high-dose magnesium glycinate, let's say, but if you're not digesting and absorbing it appropriately because we haven't gotten your gut in check or if you just have a slightly different makeup than other people, it doesn't matter how much magnesium you put in, you're going to eventually give yourself diarrhea without actually benefiting your, your serum magnesium levels. So magnesium breakthrough is a must. I also want to point out that we seem to talk about gestational diabetes as this thing that you just can't, uh, pre- you can't prevent it. Um, or even just type 2 diabetes outside of pregnancy. It runs in my family and all that. That's bullshit. There are plenty of things you can do. And so even if you you know, have a propensity for diabetes and you develop diabetes, what if you could come down off of your insulin and just manage it through diet alone? Or maybe you're on super high-dose insulin and you bring that, that insulin dose you know, requirement down. There is plenty in your power. Plenty, plenty, plenty. And I'm sort of tired of the conversation. But if you wanted another tool to help you, um, Organifi makes a, or I'm sorry, Bioptimizers makes a product called Blood Sugar Breakthrough. I eat this, I take a couple of these capsules every time I'm going to be having a very high glycemic index meal, like maybe a Chipotle burrito, like maybe sushi, that type of thing. So any of their products, I would recommend hands down. Go to bioptimizers.com slash holistic OBGYN or use code um, beloved15, I'm sorry, beloved, <laughs> beloved, and you'll save 10% on your purchase. Um, Full Well Fertility. Full Well has been a long-time running sponsor. So grateful to have them. I recommend their prenatal vitamin, their virility vitamins to all of my fertility clients. In fact, it's included in my PRP fertility package along with their fish oil and their Nourish Nerves tonic. But they just released their first product in a little while, uh, at least in the last 12 months, I think. And it's it's their uh, fertility booster. A couple capsules per day for both you and your partner are going to help boost the quality of your sperm and your eggs by mitigating the effects of oxidative stress within your gonads. So go to fullwellfertility.com, use code BELOVED, and you will save yourself. I'm sorry, it's BELOVED10. I always mess this up. I am so sorry. BELOVED10, save yourself 10%. If you're on the fertility path or if you are pregnant, they've got something for you. Or if you're postpartum, really, you want to continue to maintain this insurance policy of having a um, adequate nutrition coming in either from your diet and in addition maybe from your from your uh, you know the choose by choosing the best supplement out there so fullwellfertility.com use code beloved10 you'll save yourself 10% and then last but not least of course birthfit i saved the best for last right no i'm just kidding they're all my you guys are all all my favorite i just have to rotate these through once in a while but birthfit absolutely has a stellar program um, they have uh, i've completed their 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 birth fit coaching program. And it's incredible. I mean, it goes into everything from the lying in period postpartum. I just love that they emphasize that and and gradually, gradually moving again, gradually getting your muscles working again, working in your breathing, your posture, um, your core and your stability muscles, your biomechanics, all of that comes first before you start lifting weights again. 
but they do that. They apply that same philosophy. It's really a nervous system kind of perspective on strength and conditioning. From the beginning of pregnancy all the way through the end, they're going to talk about, you know, you're going to learn about diastasis recti. You're going to learn about um, a lip ties, tongue ties. There's all sorts of things that, uh, that you'll find out from the BirthFit community. Two options here to take advantage of a special deal. Use code BELOVED and go to birthfit.com. You can either have one, you can have both actually. Get one free month in their B community as well as 20% off their postpartum basics course where you'll, you're going to feel more empowered and safer in your body. You're going to have a deeper trust in your body in the process of giving birth and um, the process of recovering. Um, and you're going to be informed to make the best, the best choices for you and your family. So birthfit.com, use code BELOVED. You can take advantage of both of those offers right now. I've spoken enough. Let's get into my conversation with the near and dear Jennifer Lang, MD, GYN oncologist. <laughs> time work for both of us busybodies here. Yeah, thanks Nathan for having me. I want to start by um, by talking about, let's talk about pornography. Let's do it. I think yeah. everybody has looked at porn and if they say they haven't, they're probably lying. Somebody has, has offered you the opportunity to be a voyeur into the perhaps artificial sex life of two strangers that just met um, over a plumbing incident, right? And now they are um, fucking and sucking in the kitchen, in the bedroom, the the husband's coming home, like what to do. There's this entire billions on billions dollar industry. Yeah. However, uh-huh. many of us still want to do it. Some There's so much of this voyeurism. So let's first start there, right? You wrote a book called Consent, The New Rules of a Sex Education, Every Teen's Guide to, Se- to Healthy Sexual Relations Relationships. I was holding my daughter on the plane from Salt Lake City a couple of days ago, and I, I finished your book like it was just one shot. And um, I think that this is really relevant. But I want to know, what is your, how do you process this sort of fascination that people have with this voyeuristic experience of engaging in sex, but not actually doing the work themselves to uh, seduce or to, you know, foreplay with their partner in order to achieve climax or whatever it is that they're trying to achieve? Let's just start there. Ooh, yummy, juicy question. Let's dive in. Um, I mean, I have a long and complex history with porn um, that influences my feelings about it. Um, I discovered porn on my grandfather's descrambler machine by chance when I was seven years old. Seven. Kind of like, yeah, seven, really young. Wow, that is young. Yeah, and had the experience of an arousal that fled my body combined with the sense of this was wrong, that I shouldn't have looked, be looking at this, that this was something, you know, that was, I shouldn't tell anybody about who knows how I got that into my mind as a child, but I did. So it was like, it was like arousal and shame with excitement Mm. and secrets all at once. And, um, and I think that that's probably not a totally unusual story. You know, we know now that we have, and that was like a long time ago. I'm yeah. pretty old, older yeah. than you. Are. But now we have, you know, mobile devices, porn accessible everywhere. Um, my son might one day be upset with me for telling this story, but when he was eight, I uh, found in a search bar 
um, it was like sexy girls in kissing in showers. And it was clearly typed, you know, yeah. by a child's mm. hand. Yeah. Yeah. And I gave it away. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We, we had the conversation then. Um, but, you know, I never want to put shame on people for their turn ons. Right. And I, I, I just think it's a really ineffective and actively damaging thing to do. Mm. So, normal human curiosity should be celebrated. Arousal should be celebrated. We are, I think, voyeuristic beings by nature. Um, we receive, what is it, 90% of our sensory input through the eyes. Um, many of your listeners may have uh, read the book Sex at Dawn. Uh, that was right. You have 12, yeah. But, you know, there's a whole kind of segment in there on the idea that, God, how did he phrase it? Female copulatory exclamations <laughs> might exist evolutionarily in order to call in yeah. uh, other males and voyeurs to participate mm. uh, in the sexual experience. So I feel like this is something that goes really deep mm. into our evolutionary biology, this, this, and, and that it sh we should take any shame away from the discussion. That being said, <laughs> I knew there was a butt coming. <laughs> it's like I can attest to the fact that like early introduction to pretty hardcore, not totally loving images um, may have set my arousal template to something that wasn't the healthiest thing mm -hmm. that I've had to actually do some work in my life to come to a healthier relationship with um, fantasy and and images yeah. um, in my mind. Um, you know, I think the most important thing when we talk about, you know, kids and discovering porn, adolescence, and their use of porn as they begin to explore masturbation and self-pleasure, um, and then through into adulthood, is that it's all about conversations, right? Anything that we can bring out of the shadows into light with a partner, with a friend, with a trusted adult, with a parent, you know, we can um, move through and process in a healthy way. That's right. But when, yeah, there's a shame-based culture, no communication, no conversation. That's where I think that we can start to see um, kind of a drift into more of the shadow side, more isolation around the experience. And I would say like the biggest problem with porn, in my opinion, is that it's it can be isolating, yeah. right? So it takes people into their brain instead of present in their bodies. Um, and then and then when we're talking about partnered sexual interaction, it takes you out of that energetic connection with your partner and you know into fantasy. And uh, we're seeing you know this rise of I'm not even sure I believe that there's such a thing as porn addiction. I, I don't know. That's debatable. Yeah. Debatable definitely seeing and particularly you know young uh, male-bodied people in their you know 20s and 30s are having a difficult time maintaining erection with a human female partner because the brain has been so um, used to this rapid fire you know images with kind of escalated levels of intensity that a normal human can never replicate um so yeah, I know. I know. So like, I'm very pro porn. I, I wish that the porn industry um, would evolve to a way where I knew that the 
actors were being paid fairly, um, that there was full consent happening on all sides of the equation, yeah. uh, that, uh, you know, there was um, STI tests, you know, all, all of these things that we could do to make the porn industry better and healthier. Cindy Gallup's work uh, with Make Love Not Porn has been tremendous, and I love her website. And this is extremely controversial, but I'm just going to say it. I think that we should look at, as a harm reduction technique, being able to legally give adolescents access to curated, positive, healthy versions of porn so that their arousal templates can be formed on things that aren't misogynistic or, uh, yeah, violent, yeah. Um, yeah. damage, you know, and that's like wildly illegal at this point, right? But in my opinion, that's one of those laws that's ridiculous. You know, kids are looking at porn, let's be real. So let's be able to present them with a healthier version. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Thank you. Wow. I mean, that sort of says it. I want to share a story with everybody, but also for those listening, we are not the most manicured show here. And we're also on video. So if you haven't checked out YouTube, go and check that out. But I'm saying that because I want to put my camera in a tiny little bit of fine, uh, uh, what's it called? Focusing. So bear with me one second. Great, great, great. Now I feel way more, um, I don't know. Feel way more comfortable now because you're you look so beautiful and you're so in focus and here I am looking like a smear on the screen. Anyways, um, you're doing great. Thank I, you. I love the, I love the the fimbria giving us the finger in the background. We're gonna we're gonna actually transition to that in a second. Um, but I also want to demonstrate a little bit of consensual sort of adult conversation right now. I want to go a little bit into you into your person. So we haven't even introduced you yet. So um, do I have permission to go like a little a little deeper into your space? Thank you for asking, Nathan. That was very sensual of you um, to check in with me about that. And yes, I give you a full green light. Go ahead. I also feel pretty comfortable setting a boundary if that changes in any moment. So I'll let you know. Boundary setting. We don't learn how to be boundary setters when we're in training. Um, I don't know... I don't know if, if anybody out there doesn't know you. Can you tell us a little bit about what your profession is, what your trade is, so to speak, for all those years of training that you may be sort of neglecting <laughs> right now? No worries. So many years. Um, well, okay, I may, uh, I'll just say it, and we can laugh at it afterwards, that I'm a board-certified um, OBGYN, so obstetrician-gynecologist, and a fellowship-trained gynecologic oncologist, so an MD, um, and I've had a kind of interesting, not fully, you know, straight ahead yeah. inner path, um, but those are my, my street, my Those cred. are your street cred. Yeah. So I just want to emphasize for people. Life. My street cred is my, my lived experience. Well, that's, that's so true. Your, your whatever we would call, what would you call it? Not street cred, your, your sort of your nerd Academic, patriarchal, Ivy Tower, blah, blah, blah. How would the patriarchy, I should ask that. That should be my way of introducing you, you know, doctors. How would the patriarchy, uh, where would you fall in the patriarchy? That's actually what, what, what those yeah. credentials mean. Um, exactly. Making 70 cents on the dollar to you, Nathan. Man. Um, well, <laughs> uh, 
So you and I share credentials, except I want to emphasize you and I both did fellowship. I did one year of what many people would call the soft sciences of taking care of people in a dignified way as they cope with life-limiting illness and eventually their end-of-life process. And I'll tell you about why it's called a soft science, because that's language that I'm borrowing from one of my GYN oncology friends, um, versus how many, it's like, what, four, three to five years, depending on the program, right, for GYN oncology? Three years after four-year residency, yes. Yeah, so oh, three years, year okay. Medical school training. Right, right. So this is all post-grad training, everybody. You go to med school, you go to residency. If you do want to do more, you could do multiple fellowships, but at that point, you're already 45 and you haven't made any money. So Jennifer went to one of the hard, went through, I would consider one of the hardest fellowship training programs possible, um, which is G1 Oncology. And just to give you guys some perspective, how invested you were into the quote system, the G1 Oncologists, apart from maybe the surgical oncologists, were the people that could attend to almost every disaster in the abdomen or in the pelvis, in the retroperitoneal space. They were the gangsters of surgery in the OBGYN world. Now, as a result of that, and taking care of so many people with cancer, many of whom are going to die under your care, um, not because you did anything wrong, G1 oncologists, like give yourself a break. But as a result of that, a lot of the G1 oncologists, I think, became somewhat callous towards the human experience. And I would don't blame them. It's a little bit of a self-preservation. And when I was in residency, I was the worst resident. I used to carry a big binder around of papers that helped to justify my, my lack of desire to intervene in natural physiologic childbirth, my... Um, willingness to sit with people for hours at a time trying to understand their their grapple with surgery versus radiation versus chemo versus expectant management meaning we do nothing we just try some alternative means or we just get back to living life i was always the guy that was like let's get powder care involved let's get let's get powder care involved and one of my attendings i won't name them they said you know you're like you're like patch adams and i thought that was the greatest compliment compliment right and the next thing out of her mouth was patch adams was a was was a terrible doctor. Wow. And I remember leaving that day, I had already sort of decided, I saw B.J. Uh, Miller speak, uh, his TED Talk is somewhat, you know, um, a very famous TED Talk where he's a triple amputee um, from a burn injury that he, he received in college and went on to be one of the best known world-renowned, you know, kind of public speakers in palliative care. And I decided I wanted to go that direction. And everybody, all of my attendings, a lot of my colleagues who maybe were a little bit more reserved, but my attendings were not very reserved, they saw me as giving up on people by going into that. And the G1 oncologists did not want me in the operating room. They didn't want me seeing their patients. They just thought I was a complete asshole. Like, how did this guy get into this program? That was really the treatment I experienced. And looking back, it just wasn't the path for me, this sort of high acuity maternity care. I really would prefer to do the home birth thing and whatnot. So I found my way out without belaboring your sort of life story, because I'm sure you've told it a number of times. How do you go through those years and maintain integrity for who you are and how you now show up in the world? Very much open heart, open chest. Somebody I would consider, like if we lived closer, we would be like hanging out on a regular basis. How does that happen? I mean, I, I feel like people say that about me. I've never seen somebody like you do that. So lay it on me. Yeah. Well, you know, the... The real answer is um, is I I didn't right so I I I was functioning in a system um, in which my daily activities were often out of complete alignment mm -hmm. with my 
my inner belief system. And, you know, the sad consequence when that happens over, you know, years and years is, um, you know, kind of collapse, if we're being quite honest. Like it can, I feel like that cognitive dissonance, uh, that emotional, that blocking of the heart can only happen, um, can only happen so long before uh, there's some kind of crisis in the system. And, you know, I, uh, I chose um, some years ago to close my surgical practice and, um, and to, uh, you know, pursue some other interests, uh, international work with cervical cancer prevention. I wrote and published a couple books. I tried to get a tech startup going for a device that would help prevent um, sexual assault. So I did some other things thinking that there was something wrong with me, that I couldn't function within the system in a healthy and sustainable way. And what I've kind of come through, the time that I, I took away from it to understand is, you know, this is going to sound so cliche, but like, I'm not the problem here. Mm-hmm. Um, the, you know, a, a system that acts as physicians to put aside their own very human feelings and work kind of um, robotically or callously or, de- you know, defensively, uh, that's the problem, right? And so uh, I've, I'm finding a way back to clinical medicine, and I have a practice that is opening May 1st um, here Wait. in Los Angeles. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah, but it is going to be in full alignment with my heart and who I am as a person and my belief system. And um, I believe will offer the highest level of service to my clients because of that. Yeah. You know, a lot of doctors, a lot of people who, who I meet along the way, they ask similar questions to what I just asked you, like, how did you find your way out or whatever? And, and don't doctors, like, don't they give you a hard time or whatever? And believe it or not, actually, a lot of doctors don't. I mean, there are a couple of pricks on TikTok and whatnot who I don't even really give them the time of day. But, um, <clears throat> you know, and usually there's subspecialists that have just always been the smartest person in the room. And they don't like that. I'm like, no, no, thanks. That's not for me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go this direction, right? But in general doctors actually kind of like me. And I think a part of it is for the same reason, you know, that you just described is that that cognitive dissonance, I started experiencing that like day one of, of intern year as a, as a resident. I think I was on the labor and delivery suite and the mystique of birth is what drew me in here. And now I'm like manipulating these dials and things from a room with these weird screens. And like, I knew that what I, I know it sounds crazy, but, and I, and I knew what I was getting into, but the actual application of that, now that I'm the one taking care of them was like not in alignment at all. And as you progress through school, I mean, Stu Fishbein's a mutual friend of ours. Um, he really, he really helped mentor me on this cognitive dissonance that I'm feeling. Like he was the one that helped me really see that in myself. And, and I, I suspect that the reason that doctors are not all that, like, they're not like up my ass about how I show up in the world is because they too feel that way. But nobody's really given them permission to like feel into that. So I'm curious if anybody listening is out there, out there is listening, when you started to feel that in your body, where did you feel that? Like, where was it actually coming from? Not up here. I'm suspecting it was somewhere else. Yeah. Um, black hole in the center of my chest, to mm. be very specific. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, definitely heart chakra, um, green energetic umbilical cord connecting me to the earth. You know, it was just 
Yeah. It was not, it, I, I had blocked my connection. Um, but, you know, I had been feeling that from much earlier, even. I really? mean, first medical school, when we had to dissect a human body, um, uh, I, I had a big emotional reaction to that because of what I perceived as the distancing effect and the, you know, subject. Objectifying, of, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. You know, we, we had female torsos kind of amputated, you know, top and bottom with like, you know, the exam just had an arrow somewhere. And I was like, oh my God, this is how they're training doctors to look at human patients. Yeah. And it's these, you know, and then add to that the complexity of, I trained at Albert Einstein uh, College of Medicine in the Bronx. And there was this massive divide in the donated cadavers, right? So you had the kind of 90-year-old, you know, Jewish, um, willingly donated cadavers. Body, then, give your body to science kind of thing. Yeah. Exactly. And then you had the 20-year-old black males who had um, unclaimed bodies from the morgue, oh. okay, in the same room. For your anatomy and, dissection my anatomy that wow. and, and with no no sense of did this person give their consent would they want to be oh un, unclothed in front of yeah calling out albert einstein for i don't know if you've rectified that situation subsequently but that was my experience of of learning human anatomy with zero discussion of the social racial mm. cultural appropriateness of any of this of the um you know, the economic uh, realities of where we were working in the Bronx and, you know, how that played into the kind of medicine that we would be offering to patients there. So, you know, I did this piece of performance art at our um, anatomy class, kind of had a ceremony at the end of the year, you know, a very symbolic plant a tree, thank the donors, right? And and I... <laughs> I, That's amazing. Yeah, I won't get into the performance art, but it was a protest piece, and uh, so I've been protesting in my way since then. Yeah, the anatomy lab I, again. For those who don't know, when what Jennifer is talking about is not operating on a on a living person, it is actually very much the the corpus that used to um, that was used for this soul to experience life on Earth, and what it. You know, the way that we care for, you know, the dead, for people who are dying. I mean, this is just as important to write a passage if you're out there in the birth world as birth, in my in my opinion, and actually my direct experience. I mean, there's no, I'm not going to mince words. And I, um, since you shared, I'll, I'll share that my cadaver, and this is guys like two weeks, maybe two to, uh, it was like, it was like 12 weeks. It was a long rotation. Every day you're in a formaldehyde kind of smelling room with your body there and you're going to dissect a a different part of the body and um my cadaver interestingly my the the woman who gifted her um herself to me in order to learn from her anatomy was a, a woman who had died from a clearly a very aggressive struggle with uh with ovarian cancer so she had what we call you know peritoneal carcinomatosis of course you know what that is but basically her entire abdomen and pelvis was riddled with cancer the omentum was this like solid block of of like concrete and of course, then the embalming fluid all mixes in there. And it was this really messy abdomen that we were operating on. But um, I bring that up because I will never forget. It was like 
first weekend, we were to, we were supposed to saw her face in half. So when we talk about, and we did, I didn't do it. I just felt so weird about it. But one of my colleagues who wanted to be a surgeon was like, I'll do it. And just took a hacksaw right down sagittal, right down the, the center of her face. And sure, we could see her sinuses and everything now, but there was no ceremony around it. There was just no real acknowledgement of what the hell we're doing. I'm sure everybody was doing it secretly, but nobody wanted to seem like the sissy that I did in, in residency when I was like, hey, maybe we could treat this woman with a little bit of compassion because she doesn't feel like she's being seen or heard and on our maternity unit. I'm the chief resident. Another trip up to the principal's office, another remediation or whatever. It's like this materialistic reductive or, or what, um, what I've heard actually called a magnified view of the anatomy versus a minified where you step back and you take in the whole story, the whole context of this person, the gestures of what the sperm and the egg are doing as they're dancing, this corona radiata forms, like all of that stuff that we learned as OBGYNs has been reduced to just arrows on a dead person who may or may not even have consented to this process of us um, honoring or dishonoring them, depending on what you're actually feeling inside as you're doing this work. So uh, I really, I think it's great that you brought that up. Did you get any response from, like, the, did your protest or activist work lead to any changes, you think? Um, probably not. Because I think, like you, I was seen kind of as, like, the weird one. Yeah. You know. Oh, totally. And, freaking weirdos. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> thank God. Yeah. Thank God for us. <laughs> I noticed and observed in my colleagues, right? So, you know, you're. it's not just you, a single person. It's a group of, of students assigned to one body. Was, you know, this de defensiveness, right? So... Probably because there were feelings coming up in everyone, um, but there was this desire, you know, to like not be an outlier and not sure. not be weird to be accepted. There is this kind of joking uh, defensiveness and and callousness that I and I think a lot of the gallows humor that is common on medical wards comes out of that. It's like, well, actually, inside, I'm really uncomfortable right now. Um, but I need to block that feeling. So I'm going to use humor, joking, um, ridicule sometimes, sadly, you know, comes up um, as a way to uh, not be vulnerable. And it's really a shame. And I think that it is inhibiting our ability to deeply connect uh, with patients, clients, however, you know, you choose to refer to them. And there's this concept, I don't know if you've explored it at all, of limbic resonance. Yeah. Um, I think I heard that through polyvagal theory. I think there's that's kind of in that kind of flow. Yeah, go ahead. Share. I, I'd love to learn more. I, I feel like it is deeply important to um, to health and, and the healing relationship that is bi-directional, by the way. You know, that's the little thing that we need to acknowledge is this uh, unidirectional, I'm the keeper of knowledge, I'm going to impart it to you, is, I just think, a really flawed model. Hmm. How can we as two humans learn from each other? Yeah. You know, I mean, even, <clears throat> there's this great book, I always bring it up, but I'll bring it up again, Robin Wall Kimmerer's um, Braiding Sweetgrass is a beautiful uh, sort of homage to our experience with ourselves and with this objectification that we tend to lean into with every way that we show up as humans in, in our, on our beautiful earth. <clears throat> and she says that in the Potawatomi language, when she was trying to learn, and this is like her, 
her lineage is Potawatomi, upstate New York, kind of. And she started getting more in touch with that, but she was already a, like on her path to be becoming, if, if she hadn't already, a PhD in biology. And the botany world objectifies everything out there. Let's classify it. Let's name it. Let's categorize it. Let's put it into a box. And then once we know what that box is, now we can start to, to apply it for our purposes for this thing and for this healing practice or whatever. But in the Potawatomi language, she was reflecting that there is no word for tree or for dandelion. There is just the word that means the beingness of a dandelion or the beingness of a tree. Mm. And when we can start to shift, I mean, so even even our language, the English language is so reflective of a subject and object versus the beingness and the beingness. And instead of me asking, what can I, what can you do for me? The question in her, in Robin Wall Kimmerer's language would be, what can you teach me? Exactly. And uh, it would it would be so much easier as 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 doctors if we had the the and I mean it's not just doctors guys that are bad people like we have to get that out of our head. This is a massive medical and you can even argue military industrial complex that has us kind of forced into thinking we have to do this this thing in this way. Yeah. What happens when we don't have the space to just lean into a person and understand what can I learn from you? as opposed to what uh, what problem am I going to fix? Mm -hmm. Beautifully said. Yeah, we're so aligned in that philosophical approach to our role yeah. as doctor. Yeah. Um, well, thank you. I, I'm glad we were able to wax a little poetic there. I want to get um, kind of shift courses a little bit and talk a little bit about um, something else you talk about in your book, which again is called Consent. Um, I want to ask you about... The, ver the myriad of ways that now people are interrelating as intimate partners. And this goes, you know, consent, of course, is a big part of this. But I will share uh, a story that I shared with you, I think, on the phone before. There's pornography, and then there's this kind of voyeuristic uh, sort of thing like having a play party where maybe you're not even playing with other people, but you and your partner are on this couch, and there's another couple pleasing themselves on that couch. I had an experience like that at Burning Man. It's called Orgy Dome where there's one side is we're open for, for mixing and the other side is we're just going to stick to ourselves. But you're on a mattress and that's the, the direction my wife and I went. We've been there a couple times now. And you're on a mattress with like really nice kind of lighting. It's, it's kind of like low red lights. So there's not like a lot of detail, but you can see people moving in the dark and, and people are just moaning and there's, there's, you hear, um, you know, bodies rubbing up against one another and some people are are orgasming. Other people are are just like sighing with like this relief, and you hear all of this, and it's a it's a it's a real turn on. But it's separate from when I say I went to Orgy Dome, people are like, "Oh, so you guys are swingers?" And it's like, "Well, hang on, there are so many ways that you can relate." And by the way, if you're asking if I'm a swinger, it doesn't mean that I just want uh, that we're open to swinging with you. <laughs> so. So this is where I think our language and our sort of way of showing up and the isolation of pornography kind of fails us. So I want to ask you next about this trend that we're seeing um, with people trying to stay married but having open relationships. I just want to get your kind of super sort of um, surface level thoughts around this trend. Is it is this the natural inclination of the human species or is there something in our society that you think is is um, the people are grappling with and they're going out to seek this pleasure from other people outside of their marriages, for example. Mm. Interesting, complex question. I definitely have no definitive answer. <laughs> no thoughts, op opinions, experiences, perspectives, but that's really all. You know, um, I think anthropologists have 
you know, studied human sexual behavior around the world and come to different conclusions based on who they're looking at and who's doing the looking. That's a really important point on the effect of the observer. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there are legitimate questions as to whether monogamy isn't, you know, a natural state for human beings. Um, I think I could certainly say it seems to be a natural state for some human beings. Yeah. I've met people who are very comfortable with monogamy. Um, I think it becomes problematic when we have a cultural expectation of monogamy, which, I mean, if we're just being like, scientists or, or just observers, you know, when, when the stated ideal is in direct contradiction to the observed behavior patterns, like something's off, right? So, you know, what we seem to be practicing is uh, in this, in this, um, let's just say mainstream American culture is actually um, serial more, more towards serial monogamy. So multiple partners over a lifetime, but just one partner at a time is the expectation. But even with that, if you look at, and as an OBGYN, you'll just laugh because I mean, how many cases of chlamydia have you diagnosed in pregnancy? You know, like, yeah. I mean, it's the reason that the eye goop is kind of universally applied because there's this expectation that, you know, maybe there's been some extramarital you know, sex during yeah. that pregnancy. And I mean, this is, this is why we do that. Uh, why do we give universal, well, the standard to give right universal Rogam to an RH negative woman, even if her stated partner is also RH negative. That is well, a good point. I, I'm a, yeah, that's a very good point. Go on. <laughs> as physicians, we're like, okay, what's the reality? It's like the difference between perfect use birth control and typical use birth control. There can be a 20 percentage point gap there, you know? Or more. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> so anyway, again, like I'm about uh, taking shame away from anybody's um, choices, desires, personal expression, as long as it's consensual, transparent. Um, I think that more and more people are learning about consensual non-monogamy, um, which is kind of like a umbrella term that can involve any number of things from polyamory to open marriage to, you know, swinging to, you know, many books have been written about this, but I'm, I'm all about taking away shame, increasing pleasure, increasing communication, increasing intimacy through mm -hmm. truly understanding first ourselves and then our partners, what our, you know, desires, um, boundaries, fears. Um, and I think that consensual non-monogamy can actually lead to amazing communication and um, incredible self-discovery and improved intimacy um, through that process of self-discovery. Yeah. So I, I'm a fan of people exploring their sexuality in whatever way they feel best. Yeah. Man, amen. Um, <laughs> there's a couple couple directions we could go here with this. Um, the reason I asked was obviously not because we're going to you know, settle this once and for all, but also because I don't think it's for everybody. I think a lot of people maybe even feel compelled because of the things that they see. You know, this person, this podcaster is doing this open marriage thing and they have, he has the two women he's he has sex with. And it's like, gosh, that sounds really, really great. And then they try it and their marriage falls apart. And it's like, well, 
why did that happen? Who really knows? But what was the actual impetus for you to do that? Was it was it a lack of communication with your partner? Was a lot? Was it actually a lack of sexual gratification? Um, who knows? There's all these different things, but. It seems like, uh, at least in my communities, people are trying this and they're failing hard at it. And I wonder if it has something to do with what, what you and I had chatted about. You know, I don't know if I brought this up for you, but um, I'll just kind of summarize it. But Mark Gaffney has this book, this this um, um, audio book, which is really a, a seminar series he did. It's called The Erotic and the Holy. And he's a Kabbalistic um, um, Hebrew mystic. And he writes about the levels of Eros, level one being that like we're just meeting and we're dancing and we're going to go home and just just fuck the night away and it's awesome and then we do it again and we do it again but eventually that level one eros where um, love is being filled through sexuality you graduate to level two and suddenly now you're wondering oh are we not like into each other uh, maybe our marriage has gone south maybe we do need to consider divorcing and marrying other people or whatever it gets hard right it could be in dating it could be in marriage whatever and we go back and try to find that level one excitement again only to find ourselves there in level two, and we go back and find it again. So the other option would be, do we work through this level two? And this is really the path of, of this tantric path. And then we eventually arrive at level three if we've done this deep work with one another in this divine union. And I don't mean divine guys by the, like the way that the, 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 you know, your Christian priest or whatever uh, you know, ordained you as, a, as a, you know, a married couple now forever and ever, the divine union. I mean... When the yin and yang, the mountain and the river are are one with one another, that that sensibility there, you graduate to level three, and now sexuality is fulfilled by love, as opposed to the other way around, and that's where you find these couples that are in their sixties and they're just melting into one another. Still, there's something really special about that. But Jamie Wheel, um, he he worded this this trend now where people were going into this polyamory thing without really consciously being aware of where they're at in their own relationship, their, their, their base camp. And he calls them, he, he describes it as like this, this trend of lizard-brained lizard fuck monkeys is what he's saying, because they're not doing that work of, of achieving that, you know, doing the work in that level two before they go and find another person with, with, which, you know, with whom they're going to do this work again. I'm curious about your thoughts about that. Um, maybe you could even share your own experiences. Yeah, I'm feeling some resistance to some of the language that I've just heard you use. Yeah. And I mean, it's not you, you're quoting the work of a writer. Um, I, you know, f trying this polyamory thing. I mean, you could you could say that you know, people by default were trying this monogamy thing, you know, like it's really, I think, uh, coming from a very mononormative perspective, which, sure. as I said before, may not be the reality of, of human evolutionary biology. Right. So um, I'm also very hesitant and resistant when I, I hear this idea of some kind of hierarchical level system um, that is attached to a, a value statement mm -hmm. about how, how advanced or how developed is some human being. Yeah. And then I definitely, definitely resist calling anybody some kind of fuck monkey. Like, mm -hmm. I find that, like, really offensive, actually. And um and arrogance and uh, a little bit superior and uh who's to say that that is not them in their highest level of beautiful self-expression really you know like who are you yeah. not you nathan I, I hear you yeah you, you have full consent to use how whatever language yeah. in reflecting back i'm i'm just sharing because this is a topic that is so uh interesting yeah. to me yeah 
So I think like, you know, that writer can, you know, talk about, well, in my life, you know, I have noticed myself moving through these various forms of expressing my sexuality. And this has been my personal growth journey, but to try to generalize that or, you know, say that this is like the path of the divine or the path of the highest spiritual being in the room. I'm just like, mm. yeah, that, that's patriarchy to me. That's patriarchy, by the way. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so I am, uh, I try in my life to be much more, um, yeah, just um, curious uh, accepting, uh, compassionate and, uh, non-judgmental because I feel like, again, like, what do you have to teach me other being like, um, right. yeah, what can I learn from you? And the way that I have framed my life may not apply to you in the least. In fact, if you're coming from a very different, you know, um, ancestral lineage, culture, language, uh, spiritual background, like it likely doesn't, you right. know? Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you. I love it when people give pushback on anything. I feel like we're all in this podcasting space. Everybody's always just like fluffing one another up. Like I want to really get in there and find out what people are feeling. So totally. <clears throat> if anybody out there is feeling a little bit of like a, Ooh, somewhere in there, um, it's okay. Like, that's okay. We, we're, we're just like mom and dad are not fighting. Like we're actually just, I, I don't even have an, I don't actually even have an opinion on this because my wife and I are very, very happily monogamous like you said i mean we it just really works for us we've met when we were 15 and um and we're just head over heels for one another it's just it just works so if you're feeling anything out there like lean into that feel into that how is that feeling like where is it coming from where do you actually feel it in your body and 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 what do you make of it i mean just explore those feelings because i actually think that's a big part of of even your how you show up in the world with your book is like if something doesn't feel right, then there's a reason there. There's something there for us to to unpack and explore. Absolutely. And just, you know, what I say in the book is like check in with yourself. Yeah. If something feel right, like pause, <laughs> investigate, you know, and this is like with oneself, but also with a partner. You know, if something changes in your partner's body language, their uh the way they're vocalizing, they freeze up, like just just pause, just stop and check in. Yeah. And, you know, we can do that in conversation on a podcast or like in lovemaking or in really any aspect of our life. Um, it's kind of a good way to communicate. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I think that as, as OBGYNs, you know, we are taking care of people, uh, especially, um, especially women who um, who may, well, women are showing up and they are being as vulnerable with us physically, emotionally, mentally, as we allow them, you know, as, as we permit it to be. You know, some people are going to get there and say, hell no, this is just a, not a good feeling. But a lot of women feel compelled to be there even if they don't feel like it's a hell yes inside of them. And um, something my my wife and I talk quite a bit about, and, and I'd love your actual, to actual your, your take on this, because this actually relates to the next thing we're actually going to talk to is consent in medicine. Um, so leading up to that, I'd love to just share with you. My wife and I talk about this very often in Hermine Hayes Klein in an interview I did with a, she's a human rights and childbirth attorney up in Portland. She and I talk quite a bit about this on the pod, on our podcast, but women from an early age have been conditioned to some degree. And this is me paraphrasing some very, very long conversations with me and my wife. Um, they've been conditioned to be agreeable, to be compliant, to kind of just nod along at times with the program. 
for fear in that dark parking lot of maybe being you know, injured, raped, killed, whatever. So it's sort of like, hey, that guy's getting too close to me at the bar. I'm not going to be like, get off me. I'm just going to kind of try to smile and nod along until he just figures it out and leaves me alone. But it keeps escalating for, you know, many in many circumstances. And then it ends up into this big thing where he throws a drink at her face and calls her a, you know, a bitch and like all this nasty language comes out. This agreeableness, this compliance, this sort of like, I don't, I, I don't want to rattle the cage, I think is, is where I want to go with this next. So uh, as we're, we're, yeah, go ahead. No, please. <laughs> the fawning response. The so then. fawning response. I love that. you've been enjoying this conversation with Jennifer Lang. You know, a lot of people out there, given what's happened over the past couple of years, have really um, started to grapple with what the three-letter and four-letter organizations out there have to say about how to live a healthy life. The CDC, the you know American Board of OBGYNs, the American College of OBGYNs, you know, these, uh, these organizations for years uh, have been a, a bit of a guidepost for us. Then they kind of shit the bed over COVID and and uh, have it, now it has become very, very clear that if you want to have the most autonomous birth, you have to take things into your own hands. And that doesn't mean you need to have all of the information. Having an autonomous birth is more than just information. If it was a data-driven problem, like a lack of data, then we would be just fine because there is so much data in the world as to how to go about having a baby nowadays. And it's not good enough for us to just say, oh, the OBGYNs aren't, aren't looking at the literature. That's true, but that's actually not why we have so many problems. In part, it's because birth workers, OBGYNs and midwives alone, are sort of afraid. They're afraid of what's going to happen if they tell somebody to do something that goes against the rules of some you know, old white guy in the, the you know, state capital where they're practicing about what he says or she says is right or wrong about what a midwife or an OBGYN can do. That's part of it. The other part is that since we were little, we've outsourced our power. We've, we've you know, been conditioned to believe that unless we raise our hand and get permission to do anything from, you know, going to the bathroom to when we can see our family to how many hours we need to work to how much money we need to have, that there's like a sort of this undertone of like, you've got to ask permission either from the state legislators or your police or law enforcement, you know, individuals, um, from your president, from your religious leaders, heck, maybe even your mom and dad, you have to like ask them for permission to do everything. But I'm here to tell you that if you reclaim that power, which includes, by the way, owning the outcomes of your decisions, there is incredible, there's incredible um, power and, and emotional uh, bandwidth available to you. Once you say, you know what, I'm going to do it my way. And I appreciate you advising me, doctor or midwife or whoever, but no thanks. I'm good over here. When you can practice doing that, when you get there, everything changes in your life. No longer are you asking permission. You're just doing whatever it is that you feel is best based on your intuition, based on the information that's been provided to you, based on your past experience. And you're, when you approach life this way, you're almost never going to be led astray. So this is how Sarah Roster and I, the co-creators of The Born Free Method, approach everything, including how we educate and counsel our clients. Because we can't be available for every single person out there, We've put it together into a 90-plus video module course called The Born Free Method, 
with your purchase, you'll have lifetime access, all future updates, and you get 12 months of weekly calls with me and Sarah. We cover everything in this course, and I think you're going to love it, especially if you love conversations like this with Dr. Lang. So go to bornfreemethod.com, book an enrollment call. We'll get you um, enrolled as soon as you hear um, our voice on the other end of the phone, if you're ready. So go to bornfreemethod.com. We'd love to see you there. We'll see you in the, uh, the July 1st cohort, since you're listening to this on, uh, in late June. Um, so yeah, we hope to see you there. Um, I don't want to delay any further. Let's get back to my conversation here with Jennifer Lang. fawn are kind of four ways wow i have never heard that that's amazing yeah i know most people just are like fight um flight freeze but fawning what you're describing is actually i would say the most common uh way that when when somebody feels um uncomfortable with something because of our conditioning we put on the smile we you know we pacify we mollify um, in order to try to, um, you know, accumulate the least amount of violence, let's just say. Mm. Um, and it's really a shame. This is again, <laughs> patriarchy. Uh, and this, this we've, we've all heard that. Why doesn't she smile more? I wish yeah. she would just smile. You know, we, we train, we train particularly, you know, uh, Yoni bearing bodies, um, from the earliest ages to fawn and, uh, um, it needs to change. Yeah. But, but, you know, until, until society changes and, you know, we can't realistically expect the drink in the face and the bit you bitch, you whore, you, you know, yeah. comment and that violent response, you know, there's like the fawning is a survival mechanism. Mm. And so what we need to do is we need to address the patriarchy, toxic masculinity, the expectation of uh, an entitled feeling of, you know, someone in power has uh, over the bodies and um, acquiescence of someone with less power. You know, we need to address those things first. And then I think uh, fawning will go away on its own. Yeah, it's sort of like saying, um, I mean, gosh, ugh, I don't really want to go this direction, but I think I will because actually everybody can relate to this, I think. I was going to try to relate this to something like gun violence, not because I'm defending guns, but just because of the complexity of the situation. We have a lot of generally, you know, white middle class men who are going into schools, synagogues, whatever, and shooting up grooms of, of you know, Jewish men and women or children in schools or whatever else. And while, yes, it's probably a problem that people are buying, you know, military grade weapons, you know, uh, across the street from the guy that they know you know, on Craigslist, it's also a, there's a mental health crisis on our hands where there's something else happening here. It's not just take the guns away or give everybody guns like that. It's such a binary sort of um, polarized conversation there. I feel like this violence against women, especially sexual violence is far more complex than that. I, I feel like it's far more complex than like stand up for your rights, like standing up for your rights might actually get you killed. And so we have this other, you know, aspect within our society where the fawn response actually is self-preservative in some ways. Where do we go? I mean, how do we fix that? <laughs> like, where do we start? 
Oh, David. <laughs> you know, this conversation could just take us off on so many. It, it's such a, um, you know, fundamental problems with rivalrous societal yeah. dynamics with, um, you know, more for me, less for you, yeah. you know, I, with this whole mindset, this whole consciousness that needs to transform in order for our species to continue to exist on this earth. Um, but yeah, the example that you raise of guns is, is one very visible aspect yeah. of that, but you know, the kind of violence that we are enacting on the earth and all living beings on a daily basis, you know, it's, it's just, it's the same, right? Yeah. The same. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it, we need to address violence, you know, inside of ourselves like that kind of cognitive dissonance that we're asking humans to live with where they have to block their heart in order to function successfully in this really profoundly uh, sick system. You know, we have to work at that internal violence and then I believe um, deepening connection with each other, uh, em empathetic listening, true empathy um, and uh, community. Yeah. Uh, is the way to address that, but it's it's so multifactorial, so broad. I mean, it's really a, a philosophy question that you ask. Yes, mm -hmm. it is, and I'm going to give a little resistance. Mm. And we have a maternity care system where where women are routinely coming to me and saying, "I felt traumatized." They're using the word rape. They're using these types of words because of a an otherwise normal vaginal exam while they're in labor which they said no to, but hey, I have to check on the baby. You don't want your baby to die, right? And now you are being held down by a nurse and your partner, your intimate love, your beloved, and somebody's forcing themselves inside of you. Now, I know that this seems like an extreme sort of thing I'm talking about, guys, but I am getting it on a weekly basis. Somebody wants to debrief their birth with me or whatever. And um, these are this is in a, in a hospital managed, well, not managed by, but operated by doctors and nurses and a lot of other staff that really, really genuinely care about people. But these are also the people that are simultaneously offending, you know, the, the, the couples that are there to be cared for, the safe haven that is the hospital. And there's a patient bill of rights. And we have a, a litigious society. We have all of these things that should dissuade that type of behavior for doctors above all to stop and say, hang on, let's just take a pause right now. And let me check in with this person. Yeah. So, okay, thank you for raising that. And, you know, I had home births because of that um, myself. And uh, it's interesting. I was just talking to a home birth midwife last week who told me that she has recently had three obstetricians who are pregnant call her because they don't oh, want to give birth. Look at that. And I was like, I thought I was like one of the only ones that I knew. Like, I said, you know, they are welcome to call me. We can talk about this. I get it, you know, because when you've been on the other side and you see what happens and then, you know, you you feel particularly uh, strongly about uh, your own body, um, yeah. in my experience. Or some people do. Yeah. Some people do, just say. Yeah. Uh, it can go the flip side as well, where, you know, people have been so impacted by this uh, crisis-based, and fear-based model of pregnancy care and labor and delivery floors that they're they're carrying so much PTSD from just what we witnessed in our training that they want you know just straight to the C primary elective C section 
none of the drama. Yeah. You know, it's it can go both ways. Um, but it's really interesting because, okay, today, Wednesday, we are actively awaiting uh, word from the Supreme Court <laughs> over whether the stay on the Mifepristone decision will stand or not. Oh, yeah. Okay. So Justice Alito... Um, you know, issued a, a temporary stay, but it, that it expires at midnight tonight. Um, so the restrictions that were passed by the lower, allowed to stand by the lower court, will be uh, spoken to or not mm. by the Supreme Court today. So it is conceivable that they will allow a, uh, you know, ideologue, a Christian conservative anti-abortion judge to go against 23 years of um, precedent of this drug being available, cleared for use by the FDA, against all science, all medical data that has been collected among millions of women that have taken this drug over 23 years. And, you know, it's possible that they will allow this restriction to go into effect um, and, you know, you're speaking to why are women being violated on labor floors? Why are there explicit verbal decisions about what they want and don't want for their body not being honored? Mm. Well, because we live in a society that doesn't believe that women have a right to body autonomy. Yeah. Um, and in fact, the Dobbs decision at the Supreme Court last last summer um, basically said, no, women do not have a constitutional right to body autonomy. Hmm. So, you know, this is this is nation, this is society-wide. We are actively declaring, uh, at least our, our legislatures and our courts are, American voters, when you poll them, are wildly in, in favor of a, a woman having the choice, she and her medical provider, or I'm sorry, I want to be gender inclusive as well, because there are, um, you know, people who don't identify as being women who can also get pregnant. So a pregnant person and their provider um, should be able to make that decision for themselves as people who are capable of saying what feels right for their body. Yeah. Um, we have declared at the highest level of court in this nation that we do not have that right. So um, we'll see what happens today, but it is quite a day for you and I to be talking. You know, this is big news for our field, yeah. right? Yeah. Hmm. There's another couple of directions I want to go, maybe. Well, let me let me ask you this. Given all of the stuff, this sort of maelstrom of changes, and is this legal? Is it not legal? Am I going to go to jail for this as an OBGYN or not? I mean, there are certain states, my state included, where it may be that I'm never able to prescribe Cytotec again. You know, it's already kind of on the verge of that. You know, you have to be very, very clear with how you're using it and all this other stuff. Um, but Kentucky's also closed off to like cannabis. So, you know, we're, we're way behind. We're like in a different planet over here. On the other hand, in California, there's a lot of, there's, you know, it's very progressive liberal leaning. There's this sort of banner of, you know, liberalism, which by definition sort of means the freedom to decide what goes into your body, to how you're treated, how, how others, you know, want to be treated. There's more of a conversation there. When you open your practice, May 1st, right? Mm -hmm. What what are you going to do differently? I mean, how can we do this practice? Uh, how, how, can we, how, sh how can an OBGYN practice operate with all of the inclusiveness that you're describing? I'm just kind of curious, what is that going to look like? 
Yeah, well, I think it's foremost, it's going to look like um, a human being meeting and encountering another human being. And um, wait a second now. <laughs> shocking. Come on. Um, it's going to look like a lot of active listening and deep, deep listening. Um, it's going to look like a lot of respect um, for the life path of this individual, for their um, their history, their experiences, their belief systems. It's going to look like a lot of checking in with um, what are their goals, what are you know, what are their concerns, um, what what do they want. You know, and then um, a team, a team building approach to making that desire manifest. You know, um, okay. it's going to look like a pleasure, pleasure focused model of care. I want, I want people to feel like their trip to the gynecologist feels good. You know, that it's it's giving them, it's it's sourcing them what they need, whether that's body literacy, whether that's a deeper understanding of their uh, erotic response, um, whether it's, um, you know, checking in about ways that they can, you know, really thrive in all aspects of their life is truly integrative care. And it's, it's whole, it's whole person care. Um, but uh, it's, it's also collaborative and it is broad. You know, I, um, I'm actually partnering, you'll be interested in this. We haven't talked about this yet. Um, I don't know if you've heard the term systems medicine, um, but so sure. this is what I'll be practicing. It's, it's similar to whole holistic medicine, but it, it's looking at the human body in terms of interconnected systems, right? So my partner is not a gynecologist. My partner is an endocrinologist who has been you know, treating mostly yoni-bearing bodies for um, a couple decades now, um, but from a systems-wide, from the the hormonal impacts to the brain, memory, focus, cognition, um, uh, personality, inflammation, um, adrenal response, stress level. You know, so we are going to take a interdisciplinary, multi-systems approach to dealing with each individual. Um, so I'm very excited about that. That's, you know, how I feel like medicine has gotten sadly with all of this subspecialization increasingly siloed and increasingly divorced from the big picture of the whole human being sitting in front of you. And so we're, we're trying to, um, you know, reverse that. Is systems medicine also known as like network medicine? Have you heard that term before? Um, so it does uh, take into account, yeah, like a uh, network approach, you know, and, and can involve systems mapping some uh, bioinformatics and, and big data analysis, you know, so there's like the, the computer um, input as well. So, yeah, it's it's an emerging, it's really, it's a, it's, uh, what happens when you take complexity science, yeah. which in my opinion is kind of the next level of evolution after just basic sure. mechanistic reductionism, um, it, when you take complexity science and apply it to human health. Yeah, I think that's great. You know, it's it's funny though that we have to distinguish it because when you and I started medical school, I kind of, I sort of presumed that's what I would be doing is considering every aspect of the human. It wasn't until I found end of life care where it was like, 
oh, let's actually investigate their spiritual beliefs and all this. And actually, this is critical. Otherwise, I really can't show up and care for them at, you know, through this illness. Um, or it could just be not an illness. It could just be you're biologically, you know, starting to, you know, lead towards a state of death of <laughs> what somebody once said, um, permanent failure to thrive. <laughs> and, um, and that's okay, you know, um, but in order for me to understand you, like it's not a medical failure of the medical sciences when you die. It is um, actually a great opportunity for us to get to know you and your entire story that precedes you. Um, but anyways, you, you would think, especially as OBGYNs, with the complexities of, gosh, just FSH, LH, um, progesterone, and and estradiol. If you just looked at how complex the HPA, uh, well, let's call it the hypothalamic pituitary thyroid adrenal gonadal axis, you would think that we would naturally be doing that. But it is funny how we have just reduced it down to like these hormones, mid-luteal on a 28-day cycle, which is what every single woman has. Did you know that? Every single woman has a 28-day cycle. Um, just amazing how we've re reduced it to that, you know, over um, who, 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 however long. Um, I wonder when it wasn't like that. I, I would suspect probably like before Rene Descartes, Francis Bacon, um, and we separated the soul and spirit from the body. The, the mind and spirit from the body. Yeah. I don't know. When do you think we, when do we take a detour? When we expelled women from the profession, you know. That's fair. <laughs> honestly, I think that's what happened. Yeah. 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 And, and I think that unfortunately, you know, uh, this is a system of looking at the world that has led us to our current health crisis. You know, um, it's led at planetary and, and, bodily health crises. So yeah, yeah. I, I'm interested in, um, I'm interested in, in looking beyond the very reductionist view that um, our profession has some, you know, it wasn't always like that. You're yeah. right. Yeah. But it's it gone increasingly in that direction. Sure. Like so many, you know, people who identify as men and women in the system, kind of doubling down on this sort of patriarchal, hierarchical way of not only managing our staff, but also the relationship between physician and the person they're here to, to, to care for um, and, and everything else that goes with it. So you're bucking the system. You're going to start a practice that is through and through very, very different from what we experience in the conventional model. And I'm wondering from a pleasure standpoint, I, I, we can bleep this out if you don't, we can cut it out if you don't want to talk about it. But there was a letter you wrote to Jen Gunther. I don't even know that's how you say her name. Another OBGYN years ago. And you the first line of it was related to orgasming while you sleep when you remember to use your your jade yoni egg on a daily basis do you remember that <laughs> I, of course yeah yeah well you know i i felt compelled to write that letter mm. because she was basically on a a pr tour uh dissing gwyneth paltrow and even the idea of a jade egg and you know i i really resist yeah. that kind of what i see as very unfortunately typical medical model arrogant you know you, you know you poor um gullible woman that you're going to believe anything that some snake oil salesman sells you you know and i'm just like wait a second like let's actually listen to the lived experiences of our patients and let's, let's uh, believe their report about what feels right and wrong in their body. Yeah. And let's work with them, not just demean and discount them. So, you know, I, I felt a little bit 
activated by, you know, this so-called feminist who I felt was taking a very patriarchal, very kind of um, power position, uh, you know, in her communication style. And, and I paid the price for that. Um, I got, you know, trolled on Twitter by, you know, swarm of bees, you know, and, but, but I feel like it is important that we speak up just like, you know, I believe that, you know, it's very helpful when we tell our stories of, of our experience of sexual assault or our experience obtaining an abortion because it, it, or our experience with orgasm, you know, um, or just like you just shared about your burning man, you know, or detent story. Like we, the more we can normalize these things that are seen as kind of like taboo, um, the more honesty, transparency, openness we can have, the more shame can be removed and the healthier we will all be, you know? Yeah, totally. Totally. Yeah. I mean, it's sort of heresy. It's heresy for an OBGYN to have a home birth in the the sort of grand scheme of things. It's heresy for an OBGYN to even talk about sexual pleasure, it seems. It's really strange. There's this sort of pleasure. um, There's this like void. Spirituality and pleasure are going to get out of our language. Yet those are two of the most important things that we actually do bring to the table in medicine because we're dealing with birth. We're dealing with orgasm. We're dealing with relationships. communication yeah well i know actually i was talking about this the other day and like with somebody you know the history of the vibrator right yeah yeah, called life yeah used by doctors so you know women with the diagnosis of hysteria you know could come in and be stimulated to orgasm by their doctor and this was a known treatment like i have to say you know like when did that become something that we couldn't do? You know, again, heretical, heretical. But I, I think, you know, part of this is a reaction to abuse, um, you know, at the hands of many, I'm sure that many of those, pardon me, but mostly male physicians of that time, exclusively male, let's be clear, you know, took advantage uh, of their position, I'm sure. And I'm sure that trauma, you know, came out of that as well. But um, I would love to see. So I, I um, okay, here's something revealing and kind of shocking. So I have a friend who's a sexological body worker. And I had experienced some modalities, including like trauma release exercises that did not involve internal pelvic work. But I went and experienced internal pelvic work for the first time two weeks ago. Um, and that involves something that they, a modality that they use called genital mapping. Mm-hmm. and total de-armoring and uh the general mapping was fantastic obviously you know i'm well acquainted with female anatomy my own anatomy thousands of, you know however i had never had somebody touch specific points inside of me and name those points so i was connecting you know somebody else's you know because it's hard to get the hand all sure. the way you know sure. it's your hand but i had never and there were certain points that I don't know that I had ever mindfully been touched in that place before. And it was a revelation. It was an absolute revelation. And I was like, oh my God, like, why isn't this what happens when an adolescent, you know, goes to her gynecologist for the first time 
And, you know, with a mirror and, you know, a, a parent present gets a body literacy education about, you know, this is the full internal and external, you know, um, area of your, of your clitoris. This is, you know, an area that is extremely sensitive. You know, this you'll notice fills with blood when it, arousal happens. Like this is the introitus. This is, you know, the G like yeah. genital mapping as a way to learn about our bodies seems like an excellent use of a well-trained anatomist, you know, um, safe, gentle, consensual uh, care. And, you know, the other thing is, you, okay, so another thing that sexological body workers do is, and, and I, I, when I previously had the, my practice, would cross-refer all the time because I would have patients who had undergone extensive radical surgeries radiation with radiation fibrosis all kinds of scarring you know who were numb who were blocked off from any connection to sexual pleasure and so you know i would cross refer with these brilliant compassionate gentle um gifts of as humans sexological body workers who would help people reconnect with their bodies and breathe life and pleasure back into areas that have been traumatized sure. Um, but one a, a technique that they use is whenever they're doing some work that could elicit a pain response, they combine it with a pleasurable stimulation, so that you know you can repattern the neural pathways. You know, so this is can be a treatment for vulvodynia, you know, if um, or vaginismus, right, which are two. Terms that one okay, vulvodynia is a pain with touching of anywhere of the vulva. Vaginismus is kind of almost like a reflex spasm of the muscles clamping up with any um, insertion of a, an object right. into the vaginal canal. So both of those conditions can be gently relieved with um, you know this repatterning of the nervous system because the mind-body connection is powerful, right? So if every time you feel a certain stimulus, you connect it to a pain response, that is going to be a vicious cycle, almost self-reinforcing, right? Mm -hmm. But if you can, if you can repattern, so now you have the stimulus and it's connected to a pleasure response, now we can begin um, to rework our lived experience of being touched in those places. So why aren't gynecologists trained to do this? Right. No, it's shocking to me. And what is our point otherwise, right? Like what, why do we exist? It's a really good question. Like it's an existential question for the profession, right? Um, but I, I feel like, yeah. yeah, no, I, I feel like uh, finding some way to bring um, a positive experience back into visiting a gynecologist. This is not something that you have to be afraid of. You know, when I would see advanced cervical and endometrial cancer in Los Angeles, in the patient population I was mostly serving, generally it would be because of some previous trauma with um, a medical provider that kept that person away from investigating their abnormal bleeding or, you know, the lumps that was getting bigger or, you know. There is generally a history of, of um, a boundary violation or a, a trauma event mm. that, that blocked their accessing care. 
if we made this a joyful, positive experience, we could we could really get ahead of so much pathology, disease, and suffering. I believe. I, you are so well spoken. I actually, I actually want to do another interview with you, and like, I want to get into like some of the more medical nuts and bolts. But because I was going to try to transition there, but I, what you're saying, like, this is actually what OBGYNs. If you're listening out there, actually, any type of person who cares for for women, for their families, whoever. If you're listening, what Jennifer just said, I think is probably one of the most compelling reasons for these types of conversations. Because first off, well, let me like, let me set the stage here. When I was in residency, as as when you were, the idea of home birth to a lot of my colleagues was like met with a whole bunch of sneers. And it was like, oh, you're going to trust a midwife with that? Like, okay. You know, it was this like sort of lack of information. They must just not understand. How could they be so irresponsible, so selfish. There was that type of language I was hearing. And so naturally, I met Stu Fishbein. I was like, I'm going to go see home birth. I'm going to see what all the fuss is about. And it was the most beautiful thing I'd ever been to. So much so that we, as I've mentioned, we had our second at home and it was easily the, the greatest moment, the greatest thing I'd ever been a part of in my life. Um, <clears throat> that's not to say you can't have a great birth in the hospital. It was just so different from our first in the hospital. And they were both unmedicated, both undisturbed, natural, whatever those words even mean. But the reason I bring this up is that while I was there, I was hearing all this. And then I saw it myself and I was like, oh, this is not an irresponsible couple. This is not a misinformed. In fact, they're way more informed than any other clients that I've taken care of. And I say clients, by the way, guys, because you're not sick when you're, when you're pregnant. Um, I just don't have a better word for it. Um, so I started asking. I started realizing the doctors and the nurses and everybody who are, who are like, you know, making kind of underhand comments and whatnot behind these clients' backs, they're asking the wrong question. They're saying, how could you be so unsafe or whatever, right? And safe is a totally relative concept in and of itself. But I realized what they were, the, the question they could have been asking is, why are women increasingly feeling compelled to not go to you, despite all of the money and the technology they have that you have there? And the, the answer to that is, hey, guys, people aren't feeling safe with you anymore. You've actually, you've actually said or done something that has made them feel like maybe the hospital is not as safe as advertised. Now, yeah. anyways, I, I guess you could apply. So the notion, this notion that um, we as OBGYNs are only here to detect cancers, to treat the cancers, to to um, to operate on a pregnant person, to perform the procedure of delivering a baby, which most of the time we don't really even have to be there. It's like, you guys need to figure out what to happen. It's like ChatGPT is replacing people's writing jobs. You guys need to figure out how to make yourselves valuable again. Because right now, people are not seeing that value. So what you just said in the preceding, like, incredible monologue is actually where I would like to see OBGYN care, women's health care, maternity care going. Me too. Me too. And, you know, we're out there trying to, trying to make that a reality. And I feel like there will be more of us. Um, I feel like there is such a need. Um, I'm sure you've experienced this, you know, the kind of uh, breath that you hear from a client. I'm like, oh my God, like somebody's listening. Somebody's uh, offering me respect and and space to be my own person. And, um, you know, it's it's really welcome and it's time. Yeah. And fortunately for people like me and you, seeing the whole person, which really at the root of holism is not just natural, it's this physical, it's the mental, the emotional, the spiritual, this entire essence that makes you, you, 
the Jennifer Langness in the world. That is really the opportunity that we have is to care for all of those parts, to treat you like a real solid whole person. And, and people out there are really, really asking for this. They've kind of, they're like, yeah, I'll go there if I get hit by a car, but I really, really want somebody just to bear witness to my life experience. Mm -hmm. So I'm so glad you're, you're taking this approach. Um, the pleasure in my practice, really the extent of it is it's not, it's not the extent of it, but but engaging with that, I'm not doing hands-on body work internally or anything like that. Um, partly because I'm a male and I just, you know, it's the whole consent yeah. around that is really tricky. Um, and I don't, I don't have the training. There's people, you know, out there who are these really great therapists. But I do have people do a 10-day connection challenge when they're in my fertility program because the, the rigmarole of being injected with hormones and the procedures and the ultrasounds and the mechanical timing your sex and all of that has actually left their relationship kind of degraded to some degree. And, and I'm not, I'm, I'm speaking like with direct experience to the clients that have come to me and I have them do this 10 day connection challenge, which every day they're going to do something new. And, and it's like, you're going to cook a meal for one another, right? On two consecutive days. That's one of the days. Um, there's a foot rub, there's hand rub, there's, there's dancing in a room. You don't even have to dance together. You don't have to touch. You're just going to move your body in open ways. There's like genital massage without orgasm through your clothes. Like you're going to go back to your 17 year old drive-in kind of days, you know, and and it does so much. That's like therapy in and of itself. Just getting people to reconnect may be enough for them to actually get back onto, um, sort of be optimistic again about getting pregnant. Like it's such a critical thing. It's not just these mechanical procedures that we're doing. And so- I, I yeah. love that you're offering that. And I bet that the efficacy rates of people in your program are higher, you know? Um, and I think- any OBGYN or reproductive endocrinologist listening has the experience of, of seeing the patient mm -hmm. who's so focused on getting pregnant. They got to try. They try cycle after cycle. It doesn't work. They stop trying and oops, they get pregnant. Bam. Yeah. And, you know, how is acupuncture uh, during uh, IVF leading to, to, what is it, 25% improved pregnancy rate? It's by this this down regulating of the stress response. Yeah. It's the, it's the autonomic nervous system. It's, you know, coming back into our bodies and out of our heads, um, to allow, you know, <laughs> to allow biology to work. Um, so I love that you're doing that. Oh my God. I'm going to, is that something that, you know, people in California can Yes, it's all remote. And by the way, I have a hundred percent success rate right now. Amazing. I've only had, Five, please. I've only had five people go through it, five couples, but they meet with me and seven other practitioners from new, functional nutrition to a Chinese medicine doc to, you know, a breath worker. There's a whole bunch of really somatic work as well. And um, they get this big giant box. I just sent two more out to clients today and it's completely remote. And it's really, it's really just helping them relax back into this beautiful process, you know, that reconnection. Yeah. I really think that's actually it. <laughs> So beautiful. I love that you're doing that. Thank you for letting me, well, thank you for doing that in the world. Yeah. Actually, thank you for being you. Um, thank you for hosting this podcast. Thank you for using your voice and your platform to amplify a diversity of other voices. Um, thank you for being heretical. Thank you for being an outlier. Thank you for challenging the system. Thank you for showing up. Um, in all the ways that you do uh, for this world. Power. 
That was very sweet. I I was gonna fluff you up um, myself. I, I... fluffing part. That, no, that wasn't fluffing. This is like real. Man. I know. I I shouldn't have used fluffing. I just I just feel such a debt of gratitude that I met you because really I I have such a bad experience that has continued. There's residues there, but it's like slowly dissipating. And it's when I pe meet people like you that actually gives me. Um, makes me optimistic again about where we can steer medicine and building a life raft, you and I. One's in Kentucky, one's in L.A., but there's many of these little life rafts popping up. And it's not just supply-demand. It's actually what feels so in, in alignment with me. And meeting another doctor, especially a GYN oncologist, who actually sees that in me, and I'm like, I see you, you see me, like, that is really all that I need on a daily basis in order to keep going and down this very, very difficult path. But um, I, I thank you so much, really, for allowing me to connect with you and to go deeper with you and to be a little vulnerable with you. Um, so thank you. Thank you for coming on the show. Uh, my absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. If people want to find your book, they want to find your practice, they want to find you and get to know you better. Maybe there's some OB-GYN residents out there that are like, oh my gosh, because we have, do have some that are listening. I want to meet this G1 oncologist because I want to do that, but I'm a little un unsure. <laughs> any, any, it, Whatever you want to share, please take um, some time to let people connect with you if, if you feel called. Yeah. I mean, I'd love to maybe put uh, links to my books. Is that possible? For Absolutely. You? Yep. We'll link, we'll yeah. link that. Yeah. Still, God, building my website, so that will be up shortly. But, um, uh, you know, I, as of May 1st, I'm seeing people in Marina Del Rey here in Los Angeles, right across from the ocean. So we have some of that peaceful water energy influencing, um, you know, our experience there. Amazing. And, uh, yeah, I'd love to, I could put the phone numbers as well, um, the link below. We'll do that. Are you sure you want to do that phone number? Oh, not my cell phone. Listen, gotcha. I talked about this conversation with boundaries. So, you know, I, I'm that person that part of my, uh, part of the reason before was that, you know, I uh, have a tough time um, when people are in need at uh, protecting my personal space. And um, so we're, we're going to do this with healthy boundaries on all sides this next time. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Well, yeah. Be respectful of Jennifer's space, guys. This is a consensual in engagement, but I hope that you all will find her if you feel called. Um, your book, I think, should be in every young, every parent's hands in order to help guide their teens through this very, very tricky place, especially with media and multimedia and, and the internet and everything. It wasn't like that even when I was a kid, um, where you didn't have a cell phone in your hand. You weren't doing like sexy dances on apps in order to get likes and all of this, these dopamine hits. So please can please check out your book. What's the subtitle of your book again? I don't have it brought up. It's a little bit longer. Every okay. That's every teen's guide to healthy sexual relationships. There it is. For ages really thirteen to twenty five, though I haven't met many adults who couldn't use a, a refresher on some of these, including myself at the time when I wrote it. You know, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so I dedicated it to my teenage self, but I was That's also. Beautiful channeling information that my adult self needed yeah as well. <laughs> it's awesome i mean it's not even long it's like i think it's four hours on audiobook um you can get it on audible and everywhere else um jennifer we'll link as many of the things <clears throat> that you and i brought up in this very very colorful conversation in the show notes thank you again and um i'm excited to talk to you probably in the next week we, we chat all the time so or we text all the time anyways <laughs> amazing thank you nathan have a beautiful rest of your day you too
thank you to Jennifer for spending so much time with me. If you want to find Jennifer's work, she's all over the place, um, namely facebook.com slash jennifer.lang.9440, or you can go to Twitter, Jennifer Lang MD, that's L-A-N-G, Instagram, Dr. Jennifer Lang. She's got two books. Please go check them out. Whole months. Uh, oh, geez. Um, the one the one book is called Consent, and the other book is called The Whole Nine Months. Sorry. <laughs> I love typo on my sheets here, on my note sheet here. Um, please support Jennifer's work. And um, for a limited time, she is offering a $50 um, consultation for California residents only, because that's where she's licensed. You can call her at her office at 310-482-3530. We'll put all of this in the show notes, which is available at BelovedHolistics.com. And if you need to find support, anything related to women's health, parenting, fatherhood, whatever it is, I've got you. Go to BelovedHolistics.com. You can book consultations there if you're a midwife. I'm still accepting people to my my um, midwife collaborator program. I also have a fertility program there. And if you um, you know haven't checked it out, thebornfreemethod.com is my magnum opus, a co-creation with my friend and uh, companion, my pal gal, Sarah Rosser, who's one of the farm midwives down in Tennessee. Lastly, if something in this episode or any episode touched you, please leave us a five-star review. Just go to Apple Podcasts. It takes you 15 seconds, and it means a world of difference to me and my team over here. Share this episode with your friends and family. The more people that hear these episodes, the more this army of autonomous, respectful, compassionate freedom lovers is going to, the richer this group is going to get. And then lastly, remember to support our sponsors, Full Well Fertility, BirthFit, Organifi, Bioptimizers, Immune Intel, AHCC. All of their details will be in my uh, Instagram profile, any of my social media profiles, but also at the show notes, belovedholistics.com slash podcast, and in our show notes, in our show description here for this episode and every episode. Um, I appreciate you guys so, 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 so much. Thank you for tuning in. I'll see you next week with John Wineland. We're going to be getting deep and nitty gritty into masculinity into sacred polarities um john is a is a real real um, beautiful man so we'll see you next week here on the holistic obgyn podcast thank you everybody